Tonight, glad you're here. I'm going to take a few moments to pray, and then we will dig in to the study. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to meet. We thank you, God, for your Holy Spirit and His role, His purpose, His His work among us. We thank you that He inspires, that He uh, encourages. We thank you that he reveals. We thank you that he is our teacher. Uh, you said all those things about him. And so we ask you, God, that he would do all those things in our life tonight. We pray, God, for him to teach us, him to lead us tonight. We pray, God, him to empower this time. And I just ask you, Lord, that this would be a time where uh, you'd be glorified, where we would be challenged, we'd be encouraged, uh, we would be changed. We just ask you, Jesus, that you be glorified. Uh, we pray your blessing on this time, and we ask you, God, uh, for your help to hear you and to respond to you tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We have received a speak pipe message tonight, and so I want to take a few moments and see if we can Listen to that. This message is coming to us from China. China. And uh, so our friend there and her friends are sending us a message. So let's see if we can hear what's being said here. Hey, it's Aaron and Laura here. We're sitting in Yangzhou, China. We just finished listening to the May 17th Bible study together. It was really awesome. Thank you for the great teaching. I love it. All right. Hope you all have a good night. Thanks. All right. And thank you. Thank you, Aaron and Laura, for sending the message. We appreciate that, and we're really glad that you are listening and uh, happy to hear from you. Reminder uh, for our podcast listeners that we have an interactive feature with Bible study, and that is through a website at www.speakpipe.com. That's S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E dot com slash Monday Night Bible Study, all one word. You go there to that webpage, and there's a button that you can toggle, and you can leave us what would appear to be a voicemail. And we'd love to hear from you. could be just saying hi. Or maybe you have a question about Bible study, or maybe you have a comment, or you just want to tell us where you're from. But we'd love to hear from you. could be something good you guys doing in your life. So drop us a line, uh, leave us a message, and we'll endeavor to play that at our next Bible study. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah 42. Isaiah chapter 42, that wasn't just any call, that was Vinny 
Yeah. He's not a godologist or anything, but he'll give it a shot. All right. Isaiah chapter 42. I need a volunteer to read verse 13. You don't have to be a godologist to read verse 13 of Isaiah 42. So anybody that wants to read that, please do. All right, thanks for reading that. There's a picture, right? Yeah, that's a great picture. I need someone else to read, and uh, I'll refer back to this, so I'm going to go ahead and read this right from the very beginning here. Uh, so we're going to be in Isaiah, so keep your finger in Isaiah, because uh, this is the text we're using tonight. But I need someone else to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4, 5, and 6. 2 Corinthians 10, 4, 5, and 6. All right, thanks for reading that. So we have uh, two two sections of Scripture here. One is Isaiah the prophet, and he is prophesying uh, about a time uh, when God the Lord would rise up as a mighty warrior marches out, and so he's prophesying that. And then the second is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church where he is describing a spiritual battle that we're engaged in. And, and that's what he is talking to the church about, is how we engage that spiritual battle and what that actually looks like and what the weapons of our warfare look like and what that actually means. Like, what are we opposing? What are we resisting? What are we fighting against? And so you have these two sections of Scripture that describe and put into language uh, this idea of warfare. This idea of battle, this idea that uh, we are engaged in something. Uh, the first talks about the Lord, and I'm going to suggest that uh, he's speaking of Jesus here, prophesying of Jesus here. Why do I say that? Well, because the imagery he uses uh, in this passage, Isaiah 42, is imagery that we see in other places in Scripture that refer to the Messiah, that refer to Jesus. And so, uh, it's not a big leap to understand that he's prophesying toward the future uh, and prophesying toward the work that Jesus would be doing and what that would look like. As followers of Christ, we have to put some context into that uh, because we, as we talked about before, we need to see ourselves and see the Messiah in a certain way. Uh, the people of the day that they were... Uh, that Isaiah was writing to and then the subsequent generations that would come after him, they were all expecting some physical kingdom being set up by the Messiah when he appeared. But Jesus didn't do that. And in fact, the work of Jesus wasn't really... Uh, it was physical in the sense that people were healed. It was physical in the sense that people were set free. It was physical in the sense that he taught people and that he lived as an actual breathing, living human being. It was physical in all those ways, and yet 
the kingdom that he came to establish was a spiritual kingdom. And a lot of the truth that he came to lay down was spiritual truth. And a lot of things that he sought to affect in the world that he was speaking to, in the world that he was preaching to, in the world that he was ministering to, were very spiritual in nature. And the idea was that there would be a spiritual change that would take place in people that would then manifest as an outward change or a physical change. And so it was a re-emphasis and kind of a realigning of what would matter. And what would really matter was what goes on in our spirit. What really matters is what's going on inside of us. What really matters is what God's doing in spiritual things in order to affect whatever the physical world is around us. Now, everything I just said isn't a mystery to most of the world. And I've talked about this before, that we've traveled all over the world. We've had opportunity to, to speak to people all over the world, to, to hear what they believe, to hear what they think. We've had opportunity to evangelize people all over the world. And one of the things that we find is that once you leave Western Europe, once you leave the United States, kind of this, this area and, and all of the influence that have been brought uh, from Western Europe onto the United States and all of that, the spiritual realm is a given. I'm not saying it is here, it is other places. Uh, and it doesn't matter where you go. I mean, Africa, the spiritual realm is a given. You go to China, the spiritual realm is a given. You go to South America, the spiritual realm is a given. Central America, the spiritual realm is a given. This isn't something that has to be argued. In other words, I don't need to convince the, the average West African that there's a spiritual realm and it's real and it affects the physical realm. People believe that. I don't have to somehow explain to the average person I meet, say, in Mexico or the average person I would meet in Brazil. I don't need to explain to them that the spiritual realm is, is a place that can have a direct effect on what's going on in their daily lives. They understand that they know that. I'm not convincing anybody of that. And yet, if you think of our own situation here, and we think of the people that we meet or where we came from or what our belief structure was in the past, that that wasn't a given, that we're taught not to believe that, we're taught to not accept that, we're taught to believe something completely different. And so all I'm trying to say is, is that we need to kind of extend the way that we're going to see the world here. We need to extend the way we're going to understand the rest of the world and how they see things. And if we can move beyond what we were taught, if we can move beyond what our biases have been in the past, and really look and say, okay, well, how do people really see this idea of a spiritual realm? Well, most people, this is the norm. This is what it is. This is the given. And so that was true biblically. That was true uh, Old Testament, New Testament. That was true of the early church. That's been tr true for most of our history. That this is just a, a given. And so Isaiah, as he was speaking and he was prophesying, he was prophesying about Jesus. And, and yet, when people were looking at this and they were saying, okay, well, this is the Messiah. Well, he's going to ride in and he's going to just destroy whatever their, their enemy happened to be at the time. I mean, whoever they were. So if their enemies were wherever they were from, let's say that their enemies were Babylonian, then he was going to ride in and destroy the Babylonians. Were they Assyrians? Well, he's going to ride in and destroy the Assyrians. Were they Romans? He's going to ride in. And he's going to destroy the Romans. Whoever their oppressors were, the Egyptians, he's going to ride in and he's going to destroy the Egyptians. Whoever their oppressors were, that's who he was going to ride in and destroy. 
And yet the message that Jesus brings and the message that we see consistently even through, if you, if you begin to shift your perspective on this, through the Old Testament prophets into the New Testament, the message was is that your freedom and your liberty is something God gives you and it starts in here. That we can look and we can say, oh, well, you know, such and such a, uh, a kingdom, such and such a government, such and such an army is occupying or ruling or doing whatever they're doing. And yet, the, the message that, that Jesus gave and then the message that the apostles gave after Jesus as they were teaching His doctrine was that freedom resides in us. So the whole idea of the kingdom resides in you. And that was the real argument. That was the real you know, confusion even in the days of Jesus. They came to Jesus. They said, well, where's the kingdom? You're supposed to be the Messiah. You're supposed to be this one we're waiting for, the anointed one, the Messiah. Where's the kingdom? And and in Jesus' response, He's like, well, it's not what you're looking for. It's not something that you are going to see that manifest in the way that you believe it's going to be manifest. It's not going to be that that the invading armies are going to be kicked out. It's not going to be that you can measure it, that you can set up a fence around it. It's not something that you're going to be able to measure or weigh. It doesn't have physical characteristics like that. But the kingdom of God, according to Luke chapter 17, Jesus speaking to them, the kingdom of God is in you. Is in you. That freedom is in you. That liberty is in you. That, that release from the demonic is in you. And so, if you can gain that perspective, at least a little bit. I mean, just grab hold of that perspective a little bit. I mean, Jesus, when, when, he, when He gave inspired the apostles to write to the church, one of the things that the early church tried to do was they began to eliminate the physical issues that separate us. So, the idea of there's neither male nor female, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, the reason that they were trying to eliminate those things is because they were drawing a re-emphasis on that which was spiritual and that which is inside of us. And they were trying to shift people's perspective away from the physical and into the spiritual. And what they're trying to say is that if the, what's in you changes, then what's around you will change also. And so drawing the premium on what's in you so that that can be changed and then as that manifests through our lives, that around us begins to change also. But it was a new perspective on what needed to be done. Think about it in terms of the law. The Old Testament Mosaic law was given to the people and it was all these commands. This is what you can't do, right? You can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do that. Do not do this. Do not make no idols. Yeah, okay. Don't covet your neighbor's uh, cattle. Okay. Don't uh, don't steal. All right. Don't bear false witness. Okay, so it's, it's a list of things you can't do. And and I want you to think about that. And the idea of a list of things that you can't do is like a fence around you. It's like, well, I can go this far, but I can't cross that one. All right? That, that's that rule. I can't break that rule, so I'm inside this fence. But all of our limitations in the Old Testament sense, all of our limitations in the Old Covenant sense were all around us and they were, they were fenced in sin. It was all stuff we couldn't do. Like, don't eat that kind of meat. 
or, or, or whatever. So we've got the, the limitations on the outside of us. Well, if you look at like Ezekiel, or you look at Jeremiah, and they were prophesying toward a different time. Well, as they prophesied toward that different time, what they began to describe was something different than that. It would be something different that, than this external fence that is around us that we can't cross or we're in violation. What they began to describe was something in us. said the law would be written on our hearts. That our limitations would not come from the outside. It would come from the inside. And so the idea of the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God being inside of us is something that is common to the Old Testament prophets. It's something that they said, something that they were, they were trying to get people to understand. They were prophesying toward the future. And this teaching and this doctrine and this reality that Jesus was ushering in was a reality that what's in you is greater than what's around you. And if you want to change what's going on in your life, it needs to start here. That's what they were trying to get across. That's what they were trying to tell them. That's what they were trying to, to really minister into them. That kind of a truth. Some people got it. Some people didn't. Some people were willing to accept that. Some people weren't. To this day, people argue about that. Some people are willing to accept that and some people are not willing to accept that. There's not. And, and so, even Jesus, when He's talking to the Pharisees, He, said, he gave them this example. He's like, you Pharisees, you worry about the outside of the pot. You know, the stuff you cook in and you eat out of, you're worried about how that looks and you want it to look nice and clean and shiny on the outside. And Jesus says, it's more important that you clean the inside. Because if you clean the inside, the outside will be clean too. Because what part do you actually use to cook or what part do you actually use to eat out of? The inside. And so he was trying to reemphasize with them, trying to tell them, it's like, you're worried about the wrong things. And that's the argument. That's the argument to this day. Clean the outside, then the inside will be okay. Nope, that's backwards. That's backwards. And that's not the teaching of Jesus. The teaching of Jesus is you clean the inside, change comes from the inside, and then affects the outside. We have a hard time and when I say we, I mean believers seem to have a hard time believing that. I'm not even sure why. Maybe the way we're brought up, the way we're taught, something blocks us from being able to simply understand what Jesus said. Simply. And to understand that when changes need to come in our life, it needs to come from the inside out. Well, you be careful with that. See, I'll always remember that. I'll always remember that because I was teaching that teaching about it's not what goes into a man that defiles a man, but it's what comes forth out of him. Well, you certainly be careful with that, Sonny. Because I was a young Christian, you know, they starting to teach, and the older you know, believers are like, well, you got to be careful with that kind of stuff. What kind of stuff? Jesus said that. It wasn't like I was making it up. Jesus actually said that. So I'm repeating something he said, but I gotta be careful with it. No? No, not really. Because he was careful, I guess, with it. I don't know, I'm just repeating what he said. 
So how am I going to be careful with something that Jesus proclaimed, Jesus preached, Jesus taught? I'm not. I'm going to proclaim it from the housetop because that's the truth. That is the absolute truth. And so if you have a hard time with that, you need to begin to change that, allow that to change in your heart, allow that to change in your mind so that you can be a little more effective for the kingdom. Because if you can't get that, you're not going to understand these principles of warfare that he's talking about here. You're not going to be a very good warrior if you can't understand what you're fighting and where the battle is. It's not. You're going to be the wrong place at the wrong time. I mean, you imagine, it's like you're all set for war, you got everybody ready to fight, right? But you go to the wrong battlefield? That's not very good, right? You're not going to win a lot of wars that way. You're not going to win a lot of battles that way at all. Just the wrong spot. And then you're sitting in the wrong place and you're ready for something, yet the wrong thing. So we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers, principalities, and spiritual wickedness in high places. Our battle is spiritual, not physical. So in this passage, Jesus, the Lord, appears in power and glory. And it describes Him crying out. And there's a picture there. There's a couple pictures there. I'm going to share one part of that. One of the pictures that's there, if you look at the words, and I've said this before, Hebrew is a, is a very visual language. It's really kind of artsy. And, and the idea behind it is certain words will invoke certain pictures. And so what you see here is this, this picture, as, as he cries out, is the idea of waking somebody up. Now, last night, I was asleep. And on my phone, there are these annoying alarms, alerts. I've turned them off. I don't have any alerts on, on my phone, except for the one they don't let me turn off. All right? But other people in my house haven't turned off the alerts. And if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm about to say. So I'm sleeping nice and soundly last night. And all of a sudden, these weird noises start going off in the house. So now I'm awake. And there's some kind of alert going on about some storm traveling through Galeville, New York, which is right near where I live. And so the storm's coming through, but they got to wake me up at like 12.30, 12.45 in the morning to tell me that a storm's coming through. If the storm's bad enough, I'll wake up. If it's not... Let me sleep. So, all these alarms went off, woke up, I awakened. Sleeping world was awakened in my house. Now, this cry from the Lord was an awakening cry. It was designed, just like those alerts are designed, to startle and to awaken. So in other words, you hear that, you're startled to the point that you come out of your slumber and you become aware of what's actually going on in the world around you. That's the idea behind it. Is that we have this picture of a world that's just sleepy or sleeping. And really when you're sleeping, you're not that aware of most things around you. 
you might wake up sometimes and you're cold. You might wake up sometimes and you're hot. You might wake up sometimes and you're wrapped up in the sheet. You might wake up sometimes and if you have a dog, the dog is laying on top of you. You may wake up sometimes or whatever's happening, but we're not normally that aware of things that are going on around us while we're asleep. Well, part of the cry of the Lord and part of the purpose of the cry of the Lord is to startle us out of that sleep and make us and help us to become more and more aware of what's actually going on around us. God wants us aware. He wants us awake. Jesus did what he did, and this is the spiritual battle. He did what he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so if we're going to awaken, we need to awaken to a couple things. One, we need to awaken that whatever our slumber was was not reality. So whatever that dream we were having was, that's not reality. It's just not. You know, you're not a, a professional ice skater, okay? You're not. You're not you're not doing the, the triple sockow or whatever and and landing it perfectly. That that wasn't really what was happening. Or you know, you're awakened and it's not really whatever it was that you were dreaming, but you have to become aware of that. And that's important. You need to be startled sometimes to become aware that whatever that dream world was or whatever that thing was that you were lost in wasn't real. And it never was real. And it just was what it was. And so you become startled, awake. You become aware of the world around you. But then what needs to happen is there needs to be an awareness of a spiritual truth, a spiritual reality around you. Acts 10.38 talks about Jesus, and I emphasize this verse quite a bit because this verse speaks to what people argue about. By people, I mean theologians and, and Godologists and people like that that argue about stuff that they don't really need to argue about. Acts 10.38 it says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Alright, so if you just stop right there, how God anointed, in other words, poured out, anointed, and empowered Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. And the rest of the verse says, how he went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed of the devil, because God was with him. So clearly in that verse, clearly to me, simply, simply and clearly to me, in that verse it talks about how Jesus did what he did. It talks about, it gives the answer. It gives the answer without getting into too many other details, without having to get into an argument about it or anything else. Jesus did what he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. By the anointing of the Holy Spirit on him and in him. That's how he conquers that's how he affects the reality around him. That's how he affected people's lives when he spoke, when he taught, when he prayed deliverance over people, when he prayed healing over people. He did it by the power of the Holy Spirit in him. And, and that makes perfect sense. That's how he could say, you've seen the things I've done, you'll do even greater. Why? Because we'll do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Same way he did. 
that He calls us to to go and to do the things that He's done. He calls us to live the life that He's lived. He calls us to to live according to that which He has lived and modeled for us to live. It makes perfect sense. Well, how do you do all that? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, He makes the Holy Spirit available to us. The same Holy Spirit that was in Him, He makes available to us. And so that Holy Spirit empowers us to do exactly what He commands us to do. That's how it makes sense. And as simple as that is, that seems to escape a lot of people. And so I wanted to speak that in a kind of simple way. That's who He is. That's His plan for us. So in Isaiah 42, we see a mighty warrior marching out. And I want you to think about that for a second. What does that look like? What does a mighty warrior marching out look like? Okay, could be. If they wore armor. What else? I mean, you think about it. What demeanor would a mighty warrior marching out have, probably? Confidence, boldness, what? Powerful. Powerful, right? Something you can see, feel, sense. And so I want you to think, like, what does that look like? I want you to think in terms of, like, a hero. Like, I mean, not in the sense, the modern sense of hero, but in the classical, like, sense of hero. What that really means. What a hero is. You're not a hero because you give blood. Okay? I've given over 12 gallons of blood. I'm not a hero. But I do give blood. I'm a blood donor. <laughs> and I, I, don't, I like giving blood. I think it helps. And so I give blood. But I'm not a hero. Right? I'm not. And, and, and I, I never thought of it that way. I, maybe I've read too, too much to, to really believe that. Okay? I can't fool myself into believing that. But I want you to think of a hero in the classic sense of what a hero really is. Not what we made up it should be, but what it really is. And that hero going out the battle, that hero marching out, this man of war and what that looks like. Somebody look up Psalm 24.8. Psalm 24, 8. Alright. And so, and the only reason I had to read that is this idea that this is not a, like a one-place theme. But you see this theme throughout the Scriptures. That there was something about understanding and in understanding the history of Israel, you understand that, I mean, this was the nature of the day they lived in. Lands were conquered. People went to war. People went to battle. That, that kings invaded your land sometimes and you had to be ready to fight. That this was the nature of their existence in Canaan. This was the nature of their existence in the promised land is that there would be those times, even their existence as they traveled across the wilderness to get to the promised land, that there were days when they were going to have to fight. There were days when they were going to have to defend. There were days that they were going to have to attack. There were days that they were going to have to uh, face the battle. And they understood that. David, a man after God's own heart, was a great warrior. Saul had killed his thousands, but David had killed his tens of thousands. 
And maybe we don't like to think of David that way and yet, but that's who he is. And that man after God's own heart was a warrior. But God's a warrior. And and understanding that that understand the Old Testament idea of the warriors to understand they understood this this, the, this picture. They understood the hero. They understood the man of war. They understood this, this this picture of God marching out to battle. That would be something they could see in their mind's eye. It's a lot more difficult for us because you know we're so far removed from that. Some of us. That we're just so far removed from the battle that uh, that we don't really have that that picture in our head anymore. Um, it's been a long time since the United States got really invaded, all right. And and, and the the fight came to our soil on any extended time frame. So we've been spared a lot of that. We've been spared that whole way of seeing things and. I'm not saying we need that or anything else. I'm just saying that we have a hard time picturing that. We have a hard time grasping that in our minds because it's something we haven't experienced for most of us haven't. And so we have this picture that in Psalm 24, we have this picture in Isaiah, we have this picture that, that this is the God and, and understanding that He's strong and mighty. And that He is the winner, the hero, the mighty one. Revelation 19.11 describes, gives us a picture of Jesus. And this is, you know, kind of going to, we're at the end of the book in Revelation 19.11. And, and you see Jesus returning. Now, the only thing I'm going to caution you with, with this is that Revelation is a, is a, uh, a vision Right, it is a, in many ways a very figurative book. It's a vision. It's apocalyptic. And an understanding, though, that this imagery continues in Jesus. Uh, Revelation 19.11 says what? And if you read on, it talks about Jesus and how written on his, uh, written on him is there's King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and also the Word of God is written on. Him. So it's definitely Jesus. And and so we have this imagery of Jesus as this man of war. We have this imagery of Jesus as one that is returning as a conquering king, as the warrior that's riding his white horse back, this hero that's returning. And so the idea here that Isaiah describes, and this is what I want you to get out of this, is his description. Because it's going to tell you something about Jesus. He talks about the soldier stirring up his anger. And that, that idea of uh, is, is to be prepared to fight. Uh, anybody here ever, uh, this is going to be a bad question probably, but you ever participate in a sport where you had to kind of get psyched up to do it? Anybody here? Like you, you had to kind of get yourself psyched up in order to be good at it. Anybody? Okay. So you think about that, and it's like, well, all right. Well, what does that mean? Well, you, you can't just go into something flat-footed most of the time. At least I, I was never good at that. I, maybe I didn't have the um, 
the the, uh, the physical giftings, the, the athletic giftings, to be able to just step into a situation flat-footed and perform at peak. I just couldn't do it. And so when I would go into a situation, I would have to sometimes, and I'm going to tell you a little secret, sometimes I just make stuff up. And I get myself a little bit psyched up so that I could go about something with a little more vigor than I would if I just went into it flat-footed. I just wasn't that good. And maybe it doesn't have anything to do with being good or not good or whatever, but that's the way I just saw it. I always imagined there were people that were able to just instantly just get in there and be able to perform at peak performance without having to do that, that they were just that good. Uh, but over the years, I've kind of found that yeah, uninspired sports performances, even among those that are very physically gifted and athletically gifted, are still uninspired and not so good. And and so and you can tell like if you watch it and you watch even professional sports and there are certain times in the season where you know the the season's over for certain teams and you see the players out on the field just mailing it in for the rest of the season you know they are they're uninspired they're they're not out there doing performing at their best I mean they're physically gifted they're they're physically they're able to, athletically gifted they're able to perform at a certain level but you see the difference between two teams. One team that is ready mentally and is out there doing it, and another team that, eh, they're mailing it in. I was just talking to somebody uh, today that they had been to uh, a couple of the Syracuse Chiefs games over the weekend, and the, the Chiefs were playing, whatever their name is now, I don't care, the Chiefs. <laughs> but they were playing uh, Worcester, which is uh, where the Red Sox affiliate is now, is in Worcester, the Woo Sox. Whatever. Anyway, uh, the Woo Sox, I think, have beaten them either 11 out of 12 times or 10 out of 11 times this season. They swept the six-game series this weekend, or between last week and this weekend. And I was looking at, I had looked at the line scores before I talked to the guy, because I just happened to come across it, and it was sad. I think it came with my Instagram feed, but there were like 17 home runs. Yeah, um... The ERA uh, for the Woo Sox was like two point something. The ERA for Syracuse was like seven point something. I mean, pitching was terrible. Uh, batting was terrible. And they lost every single game. And so this guy was telling me, is that the game? And I said, yeah, the, the uh, Worcester team really has Syracuse's number. And he, he looked at me and he was like, Syracuse looked really bad. It was embarrassing. And he's like, you could just tell him. He's like, like uh, infielders weren't diving for ball. They are just letting them through. And, you know, they, they got down six runs. It's like, hey, why should we even try? We're not going to come back. But you're in the stands. Like, I was in the stands yelling at them, you know, you can get your uniform dirty. <laughs> yeah. Now, and I only say this because it's kind of interesting to me about it, is that these are professional baseball players. Triple A, but they're still professional baseball players. They get paid to play a game. They get paid to be out there to play a game. And if you've got your average fan in the stands watching you mail it in, and it's that obvious that an old man in his 60s, no offense, Alan, in his 60s, (laughs) on Medicare already, is yelling, is heckling you from the stands, all right? You're wrong, all right? You're just wrong. And and that shouldn't happen, but it does. 
And it's interesting, as I was reading this, it kind of encouraged me a little bit, is that here we have the Lord, the mighty warrior, marching out as a hero, but he's giving himself a little self-talk. He's stirring up his anger. All right. I like that. Why is he so? It's a, it's a jealous, it's an indignation uh, against the idols. Uh, it's against the obstinate enemies uh, of the Lord. I mean, he's stirring up his anger against all of these things. He's marching out there. He's preparing himself to fight. Some of your versions will say he was stirring up his jealousy. And that is the literal word. His jealousy. But he's preparing himself to fight to the battle. Warriors would enter the battle with a loud shout. And part of the reason they would enter the battle with a loud shout was to stimulate their own courage and intimidate their foe. Yeah. So that's the picture we have. The battle cry. In fact, that, that word there... It says, he shall roar as a lion upon his prey. That's the shout. And, and that's the imagery of the shout. The other side of that imagery is that of a roaring lion about to devour its prey. The urgency of it, and this is another picture to give you the urgency of it, would be like a woman having a baby in her travail. She can't hold it back. She just lets it loose. Don't care. Loud, gonna happen. Can't hold it in. Can't hold it in. And so we get to the end of this this story here, this picture, this 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 vision, Isaiah forty two, you get to the end of it. And the idea is is that the Lord wins the battle. And that's really the important part of it. The imagery is kind of important, and I'll get to why in a second. But the, the end result is that the Lord wins the battle, meaning suddenly, utterly, He destroys and devours His enemy at once. So, the, so we get the idea from that is that it's not really a big fight. He just wins. It's not like, you often think about it too. It's, it's like, so who can fight God? The answer is nobody. Nobody. And so why does anything go on the way that it does? Well, that's kind of an interesting, that's kind of an interesting point because, and you can read on in the passage there and kind of see some of this, but the idea behind it is that God stays silent for a while. For a long time, really. God will stay silent. He'll suffer Satan or his servants and he'll allow them to prevail in the world there'll be affliction there'll be hindrance there'll be all those things but what happens is is that when he does that and you've heard me say this many 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 times when he does that it serves to increase the presumption and pride of his enemy Satan will always overplay his hand always and you can take that to the bank he will always overplay his hand. Why? He's prideful. He's prideful. And so you can always count on that. You know, we're in the middle of, of whatever we're in the middle of last year. I'm like, it's going to go too far. Uh, what? Anything. 
I don't care. I don't care what it is. It's just going to go too far. And when it goes too far, it's going to swing the other way, and it's just, he always overplays his hand. That's what happens. And, and God allows for that. He allows for, why does he do that? I can't answer that. He just does. But he remains silent for as long as he remains silent for. A long time he suffers Satan. He suffers his servants to prevail over the world, to afflict, to hinder, and all of those things. But when it's time for him to rise up, he rises up. And that's just the way he works. That's what he does. So what does this all mean to us? So if we're able to shift and we can take this imagery and begin to understand it in a spiritual way, I believe it assists us in how to pray. I believe it assists us in how to worship. And I believe it assists us in what we can expect from Jesus in our lives. I just think it helps us. But I think it also helps us to understand that according to 2 Corinthians 10.4, we have a role to play in all of this. As with everything else, we get this picture of Jesus. We get this picture of God. And, and the prophets help to illustrate that more. Right? They help to bring kind of meat and flesh onto the skeleton of what we have. This idea of of God as a mighty warrior. This idea of, of God as a mighty man of battle and a mighty man of war, the lion of the tribe of Judah. All of these words, words, words that we have, what does that look like in Jesus? What does that look like in us? Well, Isaiah 42 begins to give us some of that flesh to put onto that. Begins to give us some of the, the meat and potatoes to, to make a meal out of what we're reading, how to put it together in reality in our lives. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. So stop trying to wrestle against flesh and blood. That's not our, that's not our battle. That's not our enemy. That we don't look at it that way. We don't see it that way. And when Jesus is rising up, as we see in Isaiah 42, He's not rising up against flesh and blood. But he's rising up against his spiritual enemies. He's, he's rising up against those that are afflicting the world, those that are, are hindering and prevailing in the world. He's allowed it for whatever time frame he was going to allow it for, and it was no more, and he was rising up, and that was it. Well, we're part of that rising. He teaches us through that. He teaches us what it was. I mean, you, you look at it, it even, uh, you got to wonder, even the Old Testament, when Israel's going into the promised land, well, they got to fight. Well, why? Because He was teaching them. He was training them. He was allowing for them to grow. He was allowing them to grow in their faith. He was allowing them to grow in their trust of Him. He was allowing them to understand some of these principles of what it is. There's these principles of conflict in a spiritual realm. Why does He allow that for us? Same thing. He's teaching us. He's teaching us perseverance. He's teaching us what, what, what happens when you get knocked down. Get back up again. He's teaching us what it means to live in such a spiritual way that we're affecting things around us, not because we're manipulating something in the physical, but because we're seeing victory in the spiritual. And as weird as that sounds, and as weird as maybe that's hard for you to understand, the rest of the world fully understands what I just said. 
that we are fighting these battles not based on what we can taste or what we can weigh or what we can grab with our hands, but we're fighting these battles based on what's around us all the time in the spiritual realm. And that's where the victory is. That's where life is. That's where change occurs. That's where our lives change. That's where our lives grow. That's where we become something more than we are today. Is in that spiritual realm. Your faith is going to grow there. Your trust is going to grow there. Your authority is going to grow there. Your boldness is going to grow there. And then that manifests here and now. We need to put ourselves in a position for that to happen. If we're going to worship, we need to worship with the understanding. The Bible instructs us to sing in the Spirit, but to sing with the understanding also. To pray in the Spirit, but to pray with the understanding also. And so praying in the Spirit is just as important as praying with the understanding. Singing in the Spirit is just as important as singing with the understanding, but we need the understanding. Here again, to pray, we, we don't want to be like the seven sons of Sceva that, oh, I, you know, we try to cast out demons because in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. No, we want to cast out demons because I understand my spiritual authority and I'm telling you to go in the name of Jesus. But there's a difference, a distinct difference between saying it in third person to fourth person and you understanding your authority and walking in that authority and proclaiming that authority in whatever situation that you're in. That's what God has for us. You don't need to be a big, mean, burly person to be able to do that. But you need some spiritual muscle. And how you develop spiritual muscle, same way that you develop physical muscle, through resistance and pushing through. That's how it happens. And so we have resistance, we grow stronger, if we will. We're going to worship, but we're going to go stronger in worship. Instead of being distracted, uh, by whatever we get distracted by. I don't like this song. Uh, why is my phone flashing? My feet are tired. I'm hungry. Whatever. We all get distracted. But instead of allowing, just for allowing ourselves to be distracted every time we go to worship, maybe have a plan this time. Maybe have a bigger understanding of why. Why are we worshiping? Who are we worshiping? Why is it important to recognize Him as long, the Lord is strong and mighty, mighty in battle? Why is the psalmist, why is he worshiping? Why does he write a song about that? Because it's important. And there's other psalms. I just picked one. But if you read through the psalms, you see that imagery throughout the psalms and you start looking at it. It's like, why is that important? Well, because God's training us. God wants to train us. God wants to train us to persevere. He wants to train us to, to overcome. He wants to train us to live victoriously. But that's going to take place in us and then through us. It's going to take place in a spiritual level. Then it's going to manifest on a physical level. But He asks for us to live in a victorious fashion. 
I really believe that as you read and you look at this picture, this picture helps us, helps us to worship better. It helps me to worship better. It helps me to understand Jesus better. It helps me to understand why He reacted certain ways when He was on the earth. Why did He overturn the tables in the temple? Read Isaiah 42. Go ahead. Then you begin to see, it's like, oh, there was a reason behind that. There was a zeal behind that. And there's a reason for that zeal, and there was a reason for that reaction. But it was something that took place inside of him that was spiritual, that manifested physically. And you see that when he would rebuke demons and they would leave, or he would rebuke legion, and he, he was cast into a herd of pigs. When demons would beg him not to send them away into dry places. Well, how? Well, because of who he was spiritually. Read Isaiah 42. How he had authority over physical sicknesses and ailments. Why? Because he had spiritual authority. Right. How did he have the insight that he had? How did he preach? How did he teach with the revelation that he had? Read Isaiah 42. He did the work in the spiritual realm and it manifested in the physical realm. We have to do this work in the spiritual realm. And and I want to encourage you, allow Him to be your example. Allow Him to be that guide. Allow Him to reveal what that means and what that looks like for your life. I mean, it's okay to give a shout sometimes. If you're in church, it's good to give a shout sometimes. You're not going to scare me. (laughs) Joe might, but you're not going to scare me. Because he's loud. But you're not going to scare me. Yeah, just let it rip. It's okay to give a shout sometimes. Because it might stimulate your courage. It might uh, stimulate your faith. That's alright. I got no problem with that. I got no problem making proclamations about who God is as a mighty man of war. I got no problem making proclamations about Jesus as a lion of the tribe of Judah. Giving that roar like a, a lion about to devour its prey. A battle cry, a shout, maybe even to to wake up some of the people that are sleeping. Maybe that'll get them off their phone. Give them a yell. Might see something happen. I want to pray that that it becomes so strong in us we can't even hold it in anymore. That that kind of an expression, that kind of a release in our life is so strong that we just can't hold it in. That sometimes we just have to raise our hands. Sometimes we just have to give it a shout. Sometimes we just have to sing it out. Sometimes we just have to make a proclamation. Sometimes we just can't hold it in anymore. It just is what it is. That I'm not worried about that person. I'm not worried about this person. I just I can't hold it in. It's going to come out the way it's going to come out and that's all there is to it and that's the way it is. Period. And we let it go. We let it go. Because once God's involved in it, now hear this, once God's involved in it, whatever it is, whatever it is, whatever the situation, whatever the circumstance, 
Whatever it is we're facing, once God's involved in it, He brings destruction and He devours it once. There's no fight. It's suddenly and utterly. And things will change in an instant. Once He's involved. I love that. And some of you have heard me say that, that phrase. You hear me say a phrase every now and then. I'll say, things are going to change all of a sudden. Why? Because God just got involved. That's why. And I have faith for that. And I know that's how He works. Why? Because I've read Isaiah chapter 42. I have an expectation. Because I see a fuller picture of how this is going to happen. I see a fuller picture of what this looks like. We need to allow for that. Take a few moments. I'm going to just have you respond right where you're at. And whatever it is, and and I know we're all at different places. We all have uh, different experiences with God. And I'll see Him uh, in many ways in different ways. But maybe God wants to expand the way you see Him tonight. Maybe He wants to expand your expectations of Him. Maybe He wants to expand your expectations of you. And maybe uh, what it means to be a disciple of His, what it means to actually respond to Him, what it means to actually live in communion with Him, and what that really looks like. You know, you can't just pick and choose the parts of Him you like to live in communion with. You know, people aren't like that. Like, uh, you get married, you marry the whole person, right? You can't just pick and choose, well, I like that part of you, but you need to hide that part. I don't want anything to do with that. No, you're going to get the whole thing. That's just the way it is. And maybe God wants to reveal us a little bit more. Jesus wants to reveal a little bit more of who He is to you tonight because you're going to get the whole thing. It's not just the parts that you're comfortable with or the parts that match your personality. He's bigger than your personality. Let Him be. Let Him be. Just like we need to allow one another to be bigger than our personality, right? You can't just act like me or I can't just act like you around you, I'm going to act like me and you're going to act like you and we're going to learn how to get along and we're going to live together. And iron sharpens iron. You know, that's how that works. The rough parts on me hit the rough parts on you and we smooth it out. But it takes a little bit of rubbing to do that. Well, Jesus, He's showing us new things all the time. There's a whole prophetic world in the Old Testament to show us more about Jesus. Why not take it in? Why not? Why not learn more about Him? Why not take in more of who He is through that? So Father, I pray for us that tonight that we would see You. Jesus, we want to see You. Not just the parts that we're comfortable with, not just the parts that we like, not just the parts that are, are, are friendly or smiley or whatever, but who You are. God, I thank You that it, nothing ever changes about You being a God of love and mercy and grace and, and for You loving us and all the rest of that. That doesn't change. You are all that. We know that. But there's more. There's more to life in You. There's more to, to what You want to use us as. There's more to how You want to see us grow and, and see us become. And God, there's more. 
And so, Lord, tonight I pray that we would have open heart and open mind to see more of You. That even as we look at the picture that's being drawn here in the prophet Isaiah, there's just more. You got more. You want more. And our lives can reflect that in that 2 Corinthians chapter 10 kind of way. Wrestling, not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and spiritual wickedness in high places. And what that can actually look like in our lives. Because what it looks like in your life. God, we want to trample upon snakes and scorpions and over every work of the enemy. We want to see demons cast out. We want to see people set free. We want to see people set free from diseases and illnesses. Physical problems that are demonically a cause. We want to see people just set free in the name of Jesus. Use us. I pray, God, that You would change our hearts, change our minds. And I pray, God, we'd begin to see things more spiritually than we have in the past spiritual roots, spiritual causes, spiritual circumstances that manifest in different ways. Because God, I thank You when You get involved, victory is ultimate and flawless and sudden. So thanks. So God, tonight I pray that uh, we would have an open heart, an open mind to continue to receive revelation and continue to receive understanding that you have for us. Yeah. Fill us. Fill us with the knowledge of you. We want to see more. We want to know more. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Let's be by saying amen. Amen. UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. No, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, you Mm -hmm. know? He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyway, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? houses oh man my cousin your cousin should hook up yeah so yeah painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community like the comunidad no see a lot of people yeah no started in 1997 that's a long time ago yo that's back in the day that was before i had my eyebrows tattooed on there i remember that Mm -hmm. yeah as an outgrowth of chaplaincy of syracuse university UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of syracuse oh me and my homegirls we walk up and down there all the time i know that's our hood Mm mm-hmm so it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. You know, yeah.